the title of today is Beautiful Feet. Um, so I, if anybody um, knows their Bible inside out, but you can't guess which passages I'm going to be using. Um, I'm going to be bouncing around the Bible quite a lot, but I'm going to hinge it on one uh, particular passage, which we'll have a look at in a minute. But first of all, what I want you to do is take a look at your feet. Uh, your own feet. Probably most of you have got shoes on, um, although the weather is unseasonably warm, so I've seen a few sandals around. Um, but think about the feet underneath your shoes and your socks. Uh, some of you might have nail polish on, uh, had a pedicure. Some of you might have been to see a chiropodist. No doubt many will have rough patches on their feet, and sorry to be a bit gross, there might be some mild fungal infections out there or uh, other foot-related impairments. You might have big feet, you might have small feet. Your feet may work perfectly or it may, they may cause you difficulty. But whatever your feet are like, and there is a point to this, don't worry, I'm not just going to be talking about the health of feet. Um, for many of us, we kind of take our feet for granted. Uh, I personally have never actually stopped and studied my feet for any length of time. I know my feet carry me around places. I just kind of assume that they're going to be there and they're going to be great. And the significance of feet in the Bible is something which actually over the last few years has come back to me again and again, um, which I wasn't really kind of expecting when you know, God's speaking to you about stuff and he's talking to you about feet. Um, most recently I was at a Methodist church ordination service for my work, and again the subject of feet in the Bible reoccurred, and uh, I kind of thought, I think there's something in this for Jubilee. And right, this, this might sound like a random subject to be preaching on, and I... I really do believe that God has got something for us at this time of transition of buildings. God has been really, really faithful to us at Jubilee in what he's been saying, that we're going to be moving into a position of influence. We're going to be, a profile of our church is going to be raised. You see, we're no longer going to be called that church that meets in other people's buildings. We're going to be the church that meets above Argos. Or we're going to be the church in Mel Square Shopping Centre. Or we're going to be the church next to Games Workshop. Or the church on the Warwick Road. Or we're going to be that church that is just there. And and why, why do they all go in there when we go shopping? We're going to have a position of influence just by being there. And so I want to share with a little of you what God has been speaking to me about the significance of feet. And challenging us to think a little bit more about our own feet in advancing the kingdom of God throughout Solihull and beyond. So I want to pray for us before we start, and I want to ask that God will really speak to us through this. Lord Jesus, I thank you. I thank you so much for your gospel. I thank you so much that we can sing about your gospel, that we can worship you for what you have done. Father, I thank you for everything that has gone already just in these last hour or so at church. Lord, I thank you that our minds can be opened to who you are. So Lord, I ask now, Holy Spirit, come amongst us, come and rest upon us, rest upon our minds and our hearts, that we would uh, be open to receive a message from you today. Lord, I thank you for this uh, this message you've given me, and I ask, Lord, that you would uh, speak through me in Jesus' name. Amen. So the passage we're going to be looking at, and everything is going to hinge on, is Isaiah 52. Um, so if you've got it in your Bible, I'm going to read um, from the beginning of Isaiah 52, and then we'll get into it. It says this, uh, Isaiah 52, Awake, awake, O Zion, clothe yourself with strength. Put on your garments of splendor. O Jerusalem, the holy city, the uncircumcised and defiled will not enter you again. 
Shake off your dust. Rise up, sit enthroned, O Jerusalem. Free yourself from the chains on your neck, O captive daughter of Zion. For this is what the Lord says. You were sold for nothing, and without money you will be redeemed. For this is what the sovereign Lord says. At first my people went down to Egypt to live. Lately Assyria has oppressed them. And now what do I have here, declares the Lord? For my people have been taken away for nothing, and those who rule them mock, declares the Lord. And all day long my name is constantly blasphemed. Therefore my people will know my name. Therefore in that day they will know that it is I who foretold it. Yes, it is I. How beautiful on the mountains are the feet of those who bring good news, who proclaim peace, who bring good tidings, who proclaim salvation, who say to Zion, your God reigns. Listen, your watchmen lift up their voices. Together they shout for joy. When the Lord returns to Zion, they will see it with their own eyes. Burst into songs of joy together, you ruins of Jerusalem. For the Lord has comforted his people. He has redeemed Jerusalem. The Lord will lay bare his holy arm in the sight of all the nations and all the ends of the earth will see the salvation of our God. Now, aside from constantly singing the uh, Nathan Fellingham song, Awake, Awake, O Zion, while I was preparing this, going round and round in my head, um, I also did a little bit of um, investigation into the book of Isaiah. And uh, this passage comes in, um, in the second half of Isaiah, which many theologians will name as the book of comfort. Um, it comes after the first half of Isaiah, which many of them will call the book of judgment. Uh, And the whole prophetic book of Isaiah was written during a really difficult period as the Assyrian Empire expanded and Israel declined. Isaiah foretells the defeat of the Assyrians, but the sin of Israel leading to their capture and then years of captivity because of the sin of Israel. But he then foretells the fall of Babylon, the captors of Israel, and then the eventual return of Israel back home. That's Isaiah in a nutshell, uh, all 60-odd chapters of it. So uh, chapter 52 comes in the more positive end of the book and is actually in the middle of a, a quite a long encouragement that God has not left the nation of Israel. There is a way back from exile. And we're going to be focusing on verses 7 to 10. Um, and due to the prophetic language that Isaiah uses in chapter 52 and, and well, throughout the whole of, of Isaiah, It can seem quite unfamiliar and quite confusing at times. There's talk of beautiful feet, there's talk of watchmen, there's talk of um, language that maybe in today's culture we're not quite understanding. So what I want to do is is just throw some context onto this by looking at a different um, passage in the Bible. To help us understand it, we need to turn to to, 2 Samuel, uh, chapter 18, starting at verse 19. Um, I really believe that this is going to be quite... This was quite eye-opening to me when I when I discovered this, um, that actually this is what Isaiah would have been writing about and the context that he was writing in. So the context of, of 2 Samuel, just to get us there, is it's uh, written about King David. And King David uh, had a son called Absalom, who had returned from where he'd fled after killing his half-brother. But he then starts to mount a conspiracy to try and take over King David's throne. So David's son is trying to take over his throne. David flees 
away and Absalom chases after him because he's managed to rally a lot of the Israelites around him with this conspiracy. David then sends troops out to meet Absalom and they actually defeat him and then we pick up the story. So 2 Samuel 18 verse 19 says this, Now I am as son of Zadok said, let me run and take the news to the king that the Lord has delivered him from the hand of his enemies. You are not the one to take the news today, Joab told him. You may take the news another time, but you must not do so today because the king's son is dead. Then Joab said to the Cushite, go tell the king what you have seen. And the Cushite bowed down before Joab and ran off. As a battle ended, as a battle ended in the Old Testament, runners were chosen to deliver the news back to those who were waiting. In chapter 18, verse 3, David was told to stay behind. Don't you come and fight in case we have to run away. And so he did. So he was waiting behind the walls of the city where he was. And the runners were sent back from the battle lines to say what had happened. And runners were chosen dependent on the news that they had. You see in verse 20, you're not the one to take the news today. You're not the one to take the news. Now, I don't want to get bogged down with whether the news was good or bad because this is a whole other sermon right here in this in this passage of the fact that it was good news they won, it was bad news that David's son was dead. But I think that the thing we need to get over here, get in our minds here, is that news was being taken uh, by runners. Both men ran. It says a little bit later on in the next verse 22, I am as son of Zadok again said to Joab, come what may, please let me run. But Joab replied, my son, why do you want to go? You have no news that will bring you a reward. He said, come what may, I want to run. So Joab said, run. And then Ayamaz ran by the way of the plain and outran the Cushite. Historically, the custom would have been to run without shoes on because it was faster. They wouldn't have their armored, their armored shoes on or anything they were fighting in. They'd have just run with bare feet and they'd have just run as fast as they possibly could to get to the city. And then it says in verse 24, while David was sitting between the inner and outer gates, the watchman went up to the roof of the gateway by the wall. As he looked out, he saw a man running alone and the watchman called out to the king and reported it. The king said, if he's alone, he must have good news. And the man came closer and closer. Then the watchman saw another man running. Look, another man running alone, he said. And the king said, he must too be bringing good news. They would have known exactly what type of news was coming from the ones who were running towards them. If the news was bad, two people would often be running. And I read somewhere that that was potentially because there would be an army running behind them if the news wasn't particularly good. And if one of them got picked off, then the other one might have been faster. There would have been panic if the, if, if, if the bad news was bad in the city. People would have been gripped with fear. Something's going to happen. Bad news is coming. We need to get packed up and out of here fast. But the first thing that is said when those men get to King David is this. In verse 28, Then Iamaz called out to the king, All is well. He bowed down before him with his face to the ground and said, Praise be to the Lord your God. He has delivered up the men who lifted their hands against my Lord, my king. So contrast all of this with Isaiah 52. There's feet proclaiming good news in verse 7. They're proclaiming peace in verse 7. There's good tidings coming. They say, your God reigns. That's very similar to bowing down and saying, praise be to your Lord and God. 
The watchmen have lifted their voices. There's songs of joy. The, uh, this is the context that Isaiah would have been writing in. People would have understood, as he, as he proclaimed this, how beautiful on the mountain are the feet of those who bring good news. They'd have known instantly what that was about. Instantly what that was about. They would have known, oh wow, our city is no longer under attack. There's someone coming, there's a message coming, there's a runner coming who's going to tell us that there's no need to live like we live, in fear and in slavery and hiding behind our walls in Babylon. But the irony of all this is the beauty of the feet of the messenger who brings good news would not have been physically beautiful. They'd have been dusty and dry and cut and bruised and swollen and hardened from running and running. Not beautiful, but the beauty doesn't come from the feet themselves. It comes from the fact that they carry this news of peace, salvation and restoration. Isaiah was writing in that context and waiting for the day when the Lord returns to Israel. The Babylonians would be defeated, the exiles would go home, and the ravaged temple of Jerusalem would be restored and redeemed, and all fear would be banished, peace would prevail once more, and indeed, we read on, and this did happen in due course. But a historical account of an event is all very well, but what does it mean for us today? And I think this all lies in the prophetic, how the prophetic in the Old Testament is often applied and is often understood. You see, often when we read prophetic words in the Old Testament, there's a now and a not yet. And also, I've heard teaching on the prophetic um, quite a lot, being in this church, but also quite a lot in other places. And there is, there does seem to be a now and a not yet, which comes with the prophetic. There's a now moment and there's a looking forwards. Isaiah 52, there is a clear encouragement for Israel that they will return from exile, but that this points towards the greater deliverance in Jesus. And so in Isaiah 52, we need to look at it in the light of the New Testament because we're no longer reading the Old Testament just as the Old Testament. We have the New Testament to read it in the light of. And instantly Jesus, we see, quotes Isaiah 61 when he's at the beginning of his ministry. He quotes, The Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach good news. There's a clue. Good news. How beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. Again, the listeners would have known their scriptures and would have been thinking, there's something around good news here. There's something around this. And we know that the feet of those in the Old Testament were not physically beautiful as they brought good news. And the New Testament clearly shows that feet generally were probably not in a great state either. Matthew 10:14, Jesus tells his disciples to shake off the dust, potentially metaphorical, but that would have come from a physical idea that there's dust on your feet. John 13, 5, Jesus washes his disciples' feet, the custom of inviting someone into your home and washing their feet. And also historically, and also I think our own personal evidence knows that if we wear sandals or flip-flops in dusty and dry places, we're going to get dirty feet. I have to wash my feet if I wear flip-flops in the summer because the dirt and the dust gathers on them. And so actually, again, this whole idea of beautiful feet starts to come out in the New Testament. But Jesus' feet were an interesting subject, the scene of an interesting uh, scene um, in Luke chapter 7. So if we turn to Luke chapter 7, and we can start having a bit of a look at the feet of Jesus and seeing what we see.
I'm not going to read the whole thing, but the, the, the context of this is Jesus is eating at a Pharisee's house, and he's invited him for dinner, and he's just reclining after dinner, and in walks a woman who the Bible describes as living a sinful life in the town. Everyone in the town would have known her sins. And she was brought with her an alabaster jar of perfume. And she knelt at Jesus' feet and she wept on his feet with her tears. And then she wiped her tears with her hair. She kissed his feet, poured perfume on them. And the Pharisees were utterly outraged. They said, if this man were a prophet, he would know who is touching him and what kind of woman that she is. She is a sinner. Jesus then gives a very mini parable to Simon, but the the biggest challenge that I pulled out from this is in verse 44. He said, then he turned to the woman and said to Simon, do you see, Simon the Pharisee, do you see this woman? I came into your house and you did not give me any water for my feet. The minimal gesture of someone coming to your house was to wash their feet. Simon hadn't done that. He hadn't washed Jesus' feet when he came in, just as as, as a minimal gesture for the house. But she wept, wept my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You didn't give me a kiss. But this woman, from the time I entered, has not stopped kissing my feet. You didn't, you didn't pour oil on my head. But she has poured perfume on my feet. Therefore I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven. Her sins have been forgiven. Because of the feet of Jesus, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. Now maybe that's a bit of a stretch, maybe that's a bit of a trying to mash it in, but I think it's intriguing that actually for a moment, Jesus' feet were physically beautiful. And the message that they brought was beauty for that woman. Your sins are forgiven. But then comes an even greater irony than the barefooted runners in the Old Testament. Because the Isaiah passage is pointing towards the one with beautiful feet who will bring good news, proclaim peace, and bring salvation to the ends of the earth. And what happened to Jesus' feet on the cross was perhaps physically the least beautiful thing you could possibly imagine. Nails driven into the feet, left broken and scarred. Nails that held Jesus on the cross, paying the sacrifice for our sin and our wrong. Not beautiful to look at at all. Even, I mean, we, we sing worship songs, um, how deep the Father's love for us. The Father turns his face away. But the beauty, greatest beauty of all, the good news that we no longer have to live in fear that the enemy is about to take us out. We no longer have to walk around with boxes on our heads, as, uh, as was brought out in the worship, with something on it. I, if only I could be this better. If only I could be this good. We sang a song... I couldn't, you couldn't have asked for, it's, I was just saying to Simon Clay before this, it's like God's in charge of what's going on here. You couldn't, you couldn't have written this yourself. We've sung a song, no longer slaves to fear. We're no longer in that place, living in fear that there's a battle still raging outside. You see, Jesus is our ultimate runner. He was on that cross shouting, it's finished, it's finished. It was like he was coming over the horizon shouting, it's all right, it's over, it's all done. We don't need to be fear anymore. There's no condemnation. The battle's gone. The enemy's lost. We're, We're fine. Death has lost its sting. We're okay. Sin can't grip you anymore. And you can imagine the watchman 
The watchman, and invoking an image of watchman shouting, he's coming, it's all right, it's Jesus. It's Jesus, he's bringing good news. And in fact, the disciples, we can even see, were watchmen in Acts. They were filled with the Holy Spirit, burst out into the streets and started preaching. It's okay, it's okay, there is no more fear. We are all free in Christ. The most beautiful feet, nail-pierced, crushed, broken, Actually crushing the head of, of the devil as foretold in Genesis 3.15. Jesus' feet, the beauty of what he did. Not beautiful to look at. Thomas was able to put his fingers in the holes of Jesus' feet after he'd risen again. I still don't think that would have looked particularly beautiful. But the beauty of it was completely destroying the power of the evil one. They are beautiful because of the message they bring of salvation and freedom for all who believe. How beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. And it's just interesting, in Revelation, uh, as I was writing this, it suddenly struck me that John sees a description of the vision of the risen and ascended Jesus. After he'd risen again, broken through the power of hell and death, and everything had been laid to rest, and Jesus rose and then ascended into heaven, John, years later, sees a vision of the ascended Jesus. Now seated in the place of honour. And verse 15 says this, His feet were like bronze glowing in a furnace. His feet were like bronze glowing in a furnace. Now, as growing up uh, in a church and hearing this, I just assumed that would be bronze. Some kind of coppery colour, some kind of yellowy metal colour, thinking, that's not overly amazing, but I suppose, you know, it's a precious metal. But I looked up on YouTube, bronze glowing in a furnace. That is a light that is so intense, they're needing to wear stuff on their eyes because they can't look at it. It's yellow, white, intense light. Bronze in a furnace is intense. That is what John is seeing. The beautiful feet, once again, physically beautiful. The message of beauty, the beautiful feet, completely restored. The one who brings good news. So then... What's the challenge for us in all of this? And I believe that there's, there's, there's a number of challenges to us of how our feet can look. And I think the first challenge is to those who find themselves still living in fear and darkness. Just to emphasize again what was said earlier, those who, like in the Old Testament cities, just don't know when it's going to end. They don't know when the war outside is going to end. Those who've not heard the good news that there is no more fear, that God's perfect love has driven out fear. The perfect love that he showed in sending Jesus to die, to take away everything that we'd done, all the wrong things, and the love that Jesus showed by willingly going to the cross. There is no more fear as death has been defeated. The resurrection of Jesus triumphing over the grave. And if you've never believed and accepted that Jesus has made a way back to God, then and you can live in unity with him, then that's certainly maybe something to think about today. There is also a challenge for those of us who do believe and are following Jesus. In Romans 10 verse 3 it says this, for everyone who calls on the Lord will be saved. And how can they believe in the one, oh no, and then how can they call on the one that they've not believed in? And how can they believe in the one that they've not heard? And how can they hear without someone preaching it to them? 
And how can they preach unless they're sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. There it is again. There it is again. We've got this, we've got this world out there who needs to call on the name of the Lord. But how can they call if they've not heard? How can they hear if no one preaches it? How can we preach if no one's called us? Well, Jesus has called us. Jesus has called us by saying, go and make disciples of all nations. People need to hear this message. And the challenge for us is how beautiful are our feet. You see, we can sit in our building, and our lovely new building. It was interesting, Trevor on on Thursday said he's a bit wobbly about buildings, because actually maybe we can become a bit comfortable. But actually there's an excitement, I think, of that building, because we're right in the thick of it there. We're in the town centre, right on top of the shopping centre. And we can sit there and we can go, well, we're okay. Jesus has done an amazing stuff. And isn't he incredible? And I love what Jesus has done in my life. But Jesus has commissioned us. We need to get our feet dirty. We now need to be the ones who are running. We need to be the ones running with the good news so that the watchmen out there, those people who are standing there thinking, if only somebody would tell me a way out of this. If only somebody would tell me how to get this box off my head and how to not think of that I just need that. If only I got this extra thing, then I'd be perfect. There are watchmen out there everywhere, and they're watching the church with eyes ready and waiting. And it's sad to say, I was at, at uh, this isn't on my notes, but I was sad, uh, on Friday I went to a, a school and I did um, a sixth form debate um, about the existence of God. And none of them really wanted to argue from the cosmological point of view, which is what they were supposed to be doing. They wanted to direct questions at me. And actually the intolerance that was coming out from some of them towards Christianity and the sarcasm and the slating and the, and the, it just instantly made me think again of the Isaiah 52. All day long my name is constantly blasphemed. Therefore my people will know my name. And therefore in that day they will know that it is I who foretold it. How beautiful of the message people can use. But I just think, what was coming out there was a world of, well, these were young people, but a world of people who are there watching the church. Go on, what are you going to do? What are you going to do? What are you going to do about that subject? Oh, I see, you're just bigoted, you're just this, you're just that, you're just this. Oh, you just tell us off the whole time. But what have we seen? Personally, what have we seen? What have we seen? We've seen a battle come to an end. We've seen Christ completely glorified in front of us. We have seen it because we know it in our hearts. We've seen it because it's been revealed to us. Go tell it. That's what the world is waiting for. Go tell it. The gospel message should excite us so much that we can't help but tell people. The gospel message in my life is incredible. I love telling young people about it because it just blows their mind. Just stop and think for a moment and just think, where would I have been if it wasn't for Jesus? And I know sometimes it can be quite a negative thing to think back and think, well, that was actually quite a a dark, dark days. But I, I have to constantly think back and think, oh my goodness, where would my life have gone if Jesus hadn't broken in? If somebody hadn't preached the gospel so that I could respond and say, I call on the name of the Lord. If someone hadn't come, so I'd have heard. If someone hadn't have bothered to run back from the battle. Let's go. As we move buildings, we start a new chapter Let's answer the call again, pressing forward with the gospel of Jesus, the good news. And then just finally, Ephesians chapter 6, verse 15. I couldn't have left a talk about feet without doing the armour of God. Um, (laughs) But I think it fits perfectly. The final challenge, I think, is to consider this. 
the armour of God. Because that's all very well in saying, well, yes, let's go out and preach the gospel. That's going to be amazing. And, oh, I can't wait to do it. But the armour of God is Paul's metaphorical armour for taking a stance against what's going to come against us. Those times when you're in those colleges, those times when you're in workplaces, when you're in places where people are just absolutely hammering you for your faith. Verse 15 says, Your feet will be fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. I don't think it's any coincidence at all that feet and the gospel go together again here. A Roman soldier would have worn, which is what Paul would have been talking about, would have worn sandal-type footwear with hobnails. I've checked this out with uh, with a guy who is... Uh, oh, thanks, thanks, thanks for the confirmation at the back there. Um, they would have worn sandal-type footwear with hobnails on the bottom for two reasons. The hobnails would have given them durability. They'd have been able to go and go and go before they even got to the leather. And they'd have been able to walk and walk and walk. And secondly, there would have been grip that came from those hobnails. They'd have been able to go over all kinds of terrain. Their feet would still have been dirty because they're sandals, but they would have had the grip and the durability. And as we move maybe into a new season of taking the good news to Solihull and beyond, why not allow the gospel to really take hold in our lives so that we have that sure standing, those hobnail boots that can go, we're gripping onto this. There's something that I can grip onto. If someone challenges me in my faith... I can just give them the gospel because they can't argue with that. I'm not going to go round and round in circles arguing all kinds of different manners. I can just go, well, I can tell you what's happened to me. Jesus died. He, he, uh, he took everything on that cross. He rose again, breaking through the power of death, cell, hell and fear. And I now live a free life because of that. That's what I think we need to take out with us. And secondly, that um, the... The, durab- the durability of it as well, in the fact that we can just keep going. We've got that grip and we've got the durability. We can just keep going with the gospel and saying, do you know what, if someone knocks us down, if someone takes us, if someone just decides not to listen, we'll just keep going because we've got feet fitted with the readiness that comes with the gospel of peace. So I just wonder whether we ponder on the cross a bit more. Actually pondering on exactly what God has done. Meditate on it. A few years ago, I always think back to this, we were sat in, uh, I think it was Becky's house as a life group, and we just did a whole evening of pondering the cross. We sang songs about the cross. We just looked at passages on the cross, and we just pondered the cross together. And it was amazing. Just to, We walked out thinking, that was incredible, just to spend an hour or so, just pondering the cross, what exactly God has done. Allow God to blow your minds with his love, with his love for you. Rob mentioned a few weeks ago, and we had a, a, an amazing thing, and it just seems to have come out again today, this love of God. Allowing yourselves to be loved by him again. Allowing yourselves to be loved by God, and just saying, okay, God, I want to know what this love is that you have poured out on that cross again. I just just expand my mind and make me sit and listen to the love that you've given me. Let me just sit at your feet and listen to what you have done.